0: Issues of property. Now, what about the economy?
1: What is ownership? Is this appropriate? Goods, properties, commodification,
0: ownership, property, appropriate.
1: Hello, and welcome to another riveting episode of the Collaborative Research Center's podcast where we delve into the ever-evolving realms of private property. I am your host today, Robin Zalfeld. I'm a passionate postdoctoral researcher on a quest to unravel the complexities of property inequality within the private sphere. This quest forms part of a larger subproject, the subproject BO6, aimed at understanding the institutional and cultural transformations of property arrangements amongst couples. And in this project, we've journeyed uh, through the landscape of German cohabitation, conducting insightful interviews with 50 unique um, couples in Germany. And what we've discovered time and again is the significance of residential property. And that's what we want to talk about today. Residential property, it seems, is a cornerstone around which the intricacies of couplehood, family and gender revolve. And I'm very thrilled that I had the privilege of engaging in a stimulating conversation with Lisa Atkins, who is a renowned sociologist whose work in economic sociology, social theory and also feminist theory has left an indelible mark in academia. Currently immersed in her research on asset ownership and social inequality, Lisa is shedding light ...on the fascinating restructuring of lifetimes in Australia's asset economy. And in today's episode, we take a deep dive into her captivating book, The Asset Economy, co-authored by scholars Martin Konings and Melinda Cooper. And we traverse the landscape of her theories, daring to juxtapose them with the real-life experiences and insights gleaned from our interviewees, the German couples so sit back relax and join us on this intellectual journey as we intertwine theory and experience to shed light on the complicated world of residential property Enjoy the show so hello lisa atkins i'm really glad you're here we're meeting at the world congress of sociology in melbourne australia it's really nice you're here welcome
0: Thank you so much. It's lovely to meet you and take part in this podcast.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's a podcast uh, of the German Research Center on Structural Change of Property. And I will just dive into the questions, Mm -hmm. all right? Um, In your insightful book, The Asset Economy, Property Ownership and the New Logic of Inequality, you, alongside co-authors Melinda Cooper and Martin Konings, delve into the political economies of Australia, US and Great Britain, and you compellingly argue that there's a notable increase in the value of assets, particularly housing, something you refer to as property inflation while at the same time there's like a stagnation of wages, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Um And this shift you posit um, ushers in an asset economy and subsequently uh, instigates a new logic of inequality. Could you please elaborate on this complex interplay and its far-reaching implications? That's a huge question. I know. I'll do do
0: my best. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so let me focus in on the inequality aspect, the new logic of inequality. So one of the things that um, has happened as a result of property inflation over the past um, three to four decades or longer is that properties are inflating faster than wages. So wages are stagnating, um, asset prices are inflating. And what that means is for a typical person, say if they own, have owned a, a home over this period, is that their, their property might be generating more capital gains than they can than their um their waged work um, could be delivering, say, in any one-year or five-year period or 10-year period. Now, this has profound implications for sociology um, in the sense that, um, as sociologists, um, we've thought quite rightly um, that from the Second World War period onwards that um, the key to securing a good life was having, um, good waged work. Yeah. Um, so, but now we find ourselves in a situation where no matter what job we might have, um, that property inflation is outpacing mm-hmm. wages. Um, so that means that more wealth is being generated through property ownership than it is, say, than through having a good job. Now, This has all manner of profound um, implications. So for example, for younger people today, they might be university educated, have fantastic jobs, um, good income, really good income, uh, say a job that in the past would have secured them access to um, housing, to owner occupation and the like, but now because of the property inflation, um, they find themselves locked out of the housing market. So, what we're seeing is a new logic of inequality um, kind of roll out, which is most visible. That logic is most visible for in for younger generations. Um so it's kind of your relationship to property ownership and asset ownership rather than your relationship to employment that's becoming the defining feature of your socioeconomic positioning um, in, in the asset economy. The other issue, of course, is that um, because of the wealth that's been built up through property inflation, um, um, older people who might have bought their a home in say the 70s or the 80s, they're now starting to hand over the wealth that they've accumulated from owning a property to their adult children and to position their adult children in the property market. So housing wealth is is begetting housing wealth. So the housing wealth that parents have built up is now being handed on. And you can see how there's almost kind of class-like positions emerging in the asset economy and you can see the mechanisms through which um, housing wealth is being reproduced um, um, and inequality is being reproduced across generations mm-hmm. through these intergenerational transfers of wealth. So I hope that gives us something to go on. There's yeah. there's so much here. And you're right, there are far-reaching implications. So if, if one finds oneself locked out of the housing market... If you don't have parents who can provide you with some, um, uh, a trans, a wealth transfer, um, at, um, and you find yourself locked out, you're, you're in a kind of dreadful position. Um, you don't really have a mechanism through which to access the property market and, and, and most critically, um, asset ownership and the speculative possibilities that asset ownership provides for you the, you know, the potential of capital gains.
1: Okay. Yeah. You mentioned the buzzword asset. Yes. Um, that's what I want to, uh, dive into next. Um, your work convincingly presents the case for a significant uh, transition from commodification to asset centered thinking, yeah. particularly in the, in the housing sector. Um, For the benefit of our listeners, could you expound on the distinction between considering housing as a commodity versus an asset? Um, And moreover, I have two big questions again. Um, Moreover, how does this transformation influence um, the socioeconomic landscape? And how does this shift reshape our understanding Uh, of property and ownership?
0: Great questions. So let me take the first one first, um, which is what's the difference between um, an asset and a commodity? Mm-hmm. And you're right, in our book, we make an argument that we've moved from a commodity logic to an asset logic. Mm-hmm. The most important difference is that an asset has a speculative dimension. And what I mean by that is that um, assets um, have uh, a, fu- a, f- a future-facing dimension which is all about the potential of capital gains. So assets are um income generating in a way that a commodity may not be. So commodities as um you know writers like Marx talked about commodities actually their their value declines over time whereas um uh, assets over time their value tends to Increase. So it's that future dimension that's the critical distinction. The the speculative dimension is the most important distinguishing characteristic of an asset and makes it different from a commodity. Mm -hmm. I've forgotten your two next parts.
1: Um, how this transformation influences the socioeconomic landscape and. Yeah. How the shift uh, reshapes our understanding of property and ownership.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> so I think historically, you know, people like Pickle Piketty talk about the return of wealth as if yeah. we're going backwards in yeah. time, right? Um, um and. In our book, we actually argue against that position. And I think it's an easy position for us to adopt. It's like, oh my God, look at all these wealth inner policies that now have, um, look, look similar to those that we have, say, pre uh, welfare state eras, pre, um, redistribution. Mm-hmm. Um, our argument in the book is that what distinguishes wealth inequalities today from those of the pre-welfare state era is precisely the speculative dimension the financialized dimension so that you know pre pre pre-welfare states um wealth inequalities didn't have this speculative financial dimension because the financialization of everyday life um through, for instance, everyday home ownership simply wasn't present, say, in the 1920s and the 1930s in the way it is now in the contemporary period. So we don't like to think about the return of wealth. Um We like to think about our period as having a, v- a very distinctive logic, which is the asset logic or speculative dimension, which is Made possible through the finance, what, you know, the financialization of everyday everyday life. The fact that, you know, from the 1980s onwards in, um, kind of certainly in Anglo capitalist societies, property ownership, residential property ownership was made very easy and was, you know, the democratization of, through the democratization of finance. So, its implications, I think, for for thinking about property, are precisely that we need to think about property in a new kind of way. Um, we need to think about property in terms of being an asset, as having those, that speculative dimension, and as being very key to understanding how modern democracies are operating. You know, so in a in a country like Australia, there are multiple. Tax breaks and tax incentives um, that asset owners um, enjoy. Um, in other words, the whole, our whole kind of democracy and political system is very, very much turns around asset ownership or property ownership. Mm-hmm. So, and that certainly wasn't present pre welfare, pre welfare state, and even during the Keynesian era or the welfare state era. Even though the foundations. The foundations of our present moment were certainly set um, in the Keynesian era, Um, but the the speculative dimension that the asset economy is something that's distinctive to the now.
1: Um, Your work predominantly focuses on market-driven economies such as Australia, the US, um, the UK, However, uh, I'm very keen to understand how these insights could translate to other national contexts. Given my association with the German Research Center on Structural Change of Property, I am particularly interested in the applicability of these concepts to Germany's unique socioeconomic landscape to give you a short background. <laughs> um, historically, uh, Germany's housing market has not followed the patterns seen in the US, the UK, or Australia. And one key difference is the prevalence of renting with approximately 50% of the population living in rented accommodation. This can be attributed to post-World War II developments when both West and East Germany emphasized social housing, Leading to the state building, uh, rental properties, implementing rental fee regulations and strengthening, uh, tenants' rights. And in the socialist, uh, Eastern Germany, private home ownership was relatively uncommon. Whereas starting from the 1950s and 1960s in the Western part, um, it gradually, gradually began to promote private home ownership although not as aggressively as um, in the US, for example. And the 1989 German reunification saw public houses being sold to private investors for renovation purposes and for financial purposes, you know. Um, additionally, Germany maintained a relatively conservative credit market, avoiding the subprime lending in the 2008 housing crisis that affected many other countries. Despite these factors which have kept uh, house prices uh, stable through the 1990s and 2000s, we've recently seen a significant increase in property prices, uh, particularly in urban areas like Berlin, Munich, Hamburg, um, and this rise. At times, even outpacing those in other international cities indicates a burgeoning housing market but not necessarily a, a bubble yep. ready to burst, given the lack of correlation with the credit expansion. In light of these developments, I'm curious to hear your assessment. Could these recent trends in Germany's housing market suggest a move towards an asset economy?
0: That's a hard question. Isn't I know. It? <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's a hard question. I mean, I think there's lots of. Um... Colleagues who do work on the political economy of housing markets in um, a range of countries, including um, including Germany. So I'm thinking of um, Matt Alber's work in particular, who has who has looked at um, these kinds of developments that you've described for Germany. Um, in a range of countries that you wouldn't necessarily immediately kind of um, associate with the asset economy or as being extreme examples of, of, um of asset logics as it were. And I think um, that, um, you know, despite the fact that there's a conservative credit market, if, if you like um, it, you know, the, your description sounds very much as if there are asset logics present in the German housing market. I, yeah, there are. Yeah. Um, and I, one of the things that's very, um, so I would say that the empirical evidence that you've presented there suggests that there are as asset logics present. And one of the things that's been happening in Australia, and I'd be really keen to know if this is happening in Germany as well, is because of the rises in house prices, um, the home ownership rate is actually going backwards, is declining. Um, and um, the demands for rental is actually increasing private rental. And it's normally uh, homeowners and themselves residential home owners that often own investment properties or rental properties that they're renting out yeah um, and so and those rents the, the rents on those properties are are going up there's more demand for private rental properties so there's an intimate connection between rental properties and um uh, owner occupation in in the sense that the rent that, um, private renters are paying, um, usually goes towards paying down the mortgages of the properties that they're living in, um, for the owners of, for their landlords. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if that same dynamic is present in Germany.
1: Well, I can speak from, um, uh, my project where we interviewed, uh, couples in Germany. Yes. And there are a couple of couples. Yeah. Um, who have, um, uh, like a house for themselves, yes, and they rent out more of their uh, residential property yeah. to to other people, yeah. and that's how they pay down their credit. Yeah, you know,
0: yeah,
1: yeah. so, yeah, so it is see, present. Yeah, but it's it's a small fraction of okay. our sample. Okay, but that brings me to my next question. Yeah, go on. <laughs> um, in my current project uh, at the German Research Center. Um, we conducted interviews with 50 couples yeah. uh, regarding their management and perception of private property. And we aimed both uh, to both understand um, the distribution of property and the practices of handling it within couples. Yeah. And in doing so, we identified several types of orientations towards property. Yeah. Uh, and I will just summarize that briefly. Yes. Um, a significant number of couples we studied were uh, stability focused. So that's like the largest part of the sample. And typically these are middle-class couples and they maintain a stable property portfolio with housing as the central component um, and exhibit a strong aversion to debts and financial risks. Another group, the consumption-oriented couples, prioritized life experiences over uh, accumulating private property, and their property portfolio was usually very narrow. Um, Some younger couples also demonstrated a desire for alternative property arrangements aligned with values such as sustainability, gender equality, and a critique of consumption. And lastly, and importantly, there were the investment oriented couples or asset oriented yeah. couples, I would say, um, which are generally the wealthiest among our interviewees who possessed a diversified property portfolio and were comfortable taking on debts and financial risks. And in the interviews, they don't, they don't frame it as debt. They frame it as investment.
0: Yeah. Or, you know. yeah.
1: Um, and this last group seems to embody the behaviors of an asset economy, although they represented a small fraction in the um, sample. One intriguing um discovery from our project is that couple discussions and negotiations often revolve around monthly cash flow rather than total wealth or assets, with residential property being the only exception. In long-term or married relationships, it is commonplace for both partners to operate under the assumption that all property is shared, um, despite often lacking an understanding of the legalities governing, uh, property distribution and this lack of knowledge, um, coupled with the illusion of we share everything, um, tends to prevent conflicts over property in their romantic relationship. Yet, we hypothesize that these tacit arrangements may trigger conflicts um, during separation or divorce, which is a topic we plan to delve into uh, into the, in the future. But these findings lead me to a question inspired by your research, as you've pointed out, um, property ownership in asset economies shapes new logics of inequality with the rise in property-based um, inequality being part of a broader structural reconfiguration of inequality patterns. And you contend that the rentier function of assets is increasingly capturing large segments of the middle class, right? Um, Given our findings, do you believe that the German middle class hasn't entirely embraced this asset logic of private property? possibly due to path dependent differences uh, in the political economy between Germany and the countries you studied, or might it be that uh, the practices of doing property often occurs unconsciously and without explicit knowledge mm-hmm. as suggested by our observation that many couples, particularly the, ma- uh, the married ones, lack a clear understanding of official property titles?
0: Yeah. This is a really interesting question. There's so much in there.
1: I know. (laughs) It was a long question. Yeah, there's
0: so much in there. So I'm just, I mean, just some observations. I mean, I think in Australia, there's a really big explicit focus Mm -hmm. on asset logics and investor logics, and it's been in the kind of popular... Mm -hmm domain popular culture for a very long time so and I think just because your sample in Germany aren't necessarily being so explicit about their investor logics it doesn't mean that it's not present Mm -hmm. right so for example um you say that your couples um their discussions often revolve around monthly cash flow rather than total wealth or assets. Now, I would see those not as being an either or, but actually being connected. Yeah. So that cash flow is often a conversation about assets in the sense of your cash flow, your household balance sheet is all about how are you going to, it's about liquidity, how you stay liquid to pay down your asset, right? Mm -hmm. So cash flow um in a kind of asset autonomy sense is very much about servicing your debts. Do we have enough cash flow to service our debts? So we've actually just um, completed a study um, in Sydney and Perth, which is another city in Australia, mm-hmm. looking at how young young couples – who desire to become homeowners are managing their cash flows um, in light of needing to save for a deposit to become a homeowner and their discussions are very much around cash flow and in the asset yeah. economy um, I think we have at least two temporalities going on there's the long-term speculative logic you know if we can become an asset owner then we've got the prospect of all of these capital gains because of the inflationary logics of assets you know if we buy a house that costs this much now it can be worth x x x much in 10 years time and we'll have this much capital gain but to achieve that you, you you're in the sh- the kind of more mundane short termism of the everyday and managing your cash flow yeah. whether that's saving up for a deposit or actually paying your mortgage, mm-hmm. which is complicated in the context of our contemporary economies, where work is often unpredictable and precarious. Yeah. Um, employment isn't as long term as as it has been historically. Mm-hmm. Um and this speaks to, you know, not only precariousness feeding in precarious employment raising challenges for that set economy, but it also talks to how Employment now actually is the route to raise cash to service our debts, Mm -hmm. you know? So employment plays a particular part in the asset economy. And my bet is these discussions around cash flows are all about, um, actually they are about wealth and they are about assets in that cash flow is the most important, um, Issue for households in the everyday. It's yeah. all about liquidity and yeah. the household balance sheet. So you might have, you know, you've got an asset over here. You've got your assets and then you've got your liabilities against the assets. So the cash flow is speaking to the liability. So it's the flip side of the same coin mm-hmm. as it were. Yeah. Yeah. And what were you, what were your, so that's what was your other question? Um, uh, now, the clear understanding of official property titles. Um, so this is really interesting, too. I don't know if you know the book called um, The Gender of Capital.
1: Oh, yeah, it's new. Yeah, it's, it's new. new.
0: Yeah. It's,
1: it's, brand new. it's brand
0: new. It's brand new. It's just, well, it was translated into English this year, mm-hmm. and um, it was published in French a couple mm-hmm. of years ago. Um, but in that in that book, there's... Um, A similar finding Mm. um, reported on, um, especially uh, among heterosexual couples um, that there's not uh, a great understanding of official property titles and how the law works in regard to property titles, and that there's only a clear understanding gained around property titles at the point of relationship breakdown. Yeah. Exactly. At the point of divorce, right? Exactly. Yeah. So this is, re- I think your findings then align with yeah. the findings in the gender of capital. And what, I mean, in the French context, um, um, the, the what was reported there was that, um, you know, it's only when one is officially married, for example, that you have an equal right to properties and, um, a lot of, um, Women in particular who were in couples, but not married, long term couples, and they owned property which they thought was in common. Mm -hmm. Um, When they divorced, they found it wasn't property in common at all. You know? Yeah. I think that's what you're getting at there. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so this is, so this shows how asset logics have become. Really, absolutely central to how we operate in in the everyday that determines determining our kind of potentials for our for our kind of life cycle and yeah. so on and so forth. So what happens over the life
1: course? So, but it's also hidden for some, reason. and hidden, yeah.
0: yes, and hidden. So there's a maybe there's one
1: the, one side is hidden and the other side the, yes. the monthly cash flow. Yes. It's not hidden, but everyone talks about it, like the couples
0: talk yeah, about it. Yeah, they talk about the cash flow, but not mm-hmm. the asset part. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. It is interesting, which speaks to the need for a kind of explicit asset politics or something. Um
1: Well, we saw some changes uh, among uh, younger couples yes. who are more explicit right. in their uh, handling of property. Okay. But um, we were wondering if that is an effect of the life course of the couple. Right. Um Because those younger couples, they're not married yet. Yeah. And they don't have children yet. Yeah. And so they're in an earlier stage yes. of the relationship. Yeah. But they're more explicit and more transparent.
0: Yeah, okay. Who
1: owns what.
0: Yeah. But it could also be a kind of realization amongst that cohort. Could be, yeah. That asset politics is it. Yeah, you know. Could
1: be. But to, this yeah. is what their
0: relationship is mm-hmm. actually. What's at stake in the relationship is going to be the assets. Um, That's true. Yeah.
1: Okay. Um, for my final question, I would like to weave in your research findings with themes of gender. Your book sheds light on the necessity for private households to effectively manage their assets and liabilities in light of their cash flow, as we just mentioned. Yes. Yes. Our research mirrors this uh, observation and it further unveils a division of labor within couples uh, regarding the management of cash flow <laughs> and property stocks. Uh, we noted that in stability-oriented couples, which I mentioned earlier, um, who might correspond to your notion of the Keynesian household, Yeah. Um, it is typically the husband who navigates the credit and housing markets thus taking charge of property stocks. Meanwhile, wives generally oversee the monthly cash flows and often shoulder mm. the burden of debt, yeah. and they're mostly like emotionally burdened by yes. debt. Um, <laughs> That's thus, while wives are tasked with managing the monthly expenditures, husbands often develop some sort of expertise and uh, property literacy and this dynamic was particularly evident and visible in couples transitioning from the socialist mm-hmm. German Democratic Republic to the Western capitalist system in the 1990s. Yeah. Um, But in contrast, or to make things more complicated, um, within investment-focused couples or asset-centered couples, we observe some sort of shift Women are beginning to manage property stocks or assets, as you refer to them, and this shift seems to have potentially empowering consequences for women, Mm. particularly for those who are often marginalized in the labor market due to their primary roles as caregivers. In fact, um, managing the household's balance sheets can serve as a mechanism to offset their limited engagement in the workforce, especially when the children are um, uh, uh, grown up. Mm. Um, and they're like in their empty nest phase.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, this observation brings me to an intriguing, uh, consideration. Could the progression towards an asset economy rooted in its uh, strongly capitalist principles be occurring concurrently with a diminishing emphasis on traditional gender roles mm. in financial management? Mm. Is gender taking a backseat to other mechanisms, driving inequality? Mm -hmm. Or maybe not when we look at the statistics. And the statistics or the numbers still clearly say that women own less than men, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. I mean, I think what you're getting at there is that in if we call it wealth society or Mm -hmm. asset society, Gender inequality is taking on new dimensions mm-hmm. and we don't yet know as much about that as we need to know. I agree. Yeah. So, for example, we know that, um, I mean, certainly, well, let me take the Australian context. Um, one of the big financial assets that are owned here aside from property is, um, superannuation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, superannuation um is held less the aggregate of superannuation um is is aggregate is held less by women than it is by men Mm -hmm. and that's because women work less so there's a compulsory employer contribution to superannuation here every if you work everyone has to contribute to superannuation and the amount that you contribute and your employer contributes literally depends on on the kind of amount of work you do and yeah. also that your wages mm-hmm. and because women get paid less than men still and um because women still work less than men yeah. the amount that's um is held by women is less Than men, and that's retirement income, right? And superannuation, and this is the critical point that I forgot to say, it's a financial asset. So it's basically stocks and shares um, that is invested, that you invest in. You invest in stocks and shares via superannuation in Australia. So your superannuation fund, whoever they will do that investing for you. Um, And so that means that on retirement women are accessing less superannuation so that this is a really big significant part of the gender inequalities yeah. in, in the wealth society. Yeah. Um, the other aspect is that um, in terms of inheritance um, you know there's a huge question around do you know women tend to not necessarily in, um, inherit the most significant assets in a family's portfolio so um and that's found in the gender of capital as well. Um so those all those authors found that um um if there was a family home that was mostly most likely go to uh, male children and women would inherit a kind of compensatory um thing like cash as opposed to an asset. Okay. An asset is income and yeah. asset is income generating mm-hmm. into the future. So there's inheritance, there's superannuation, there's also what happens to assets as you're finding in interviewing your couples at the point of relationship breakdown. Mm-hmm. Um And, um, you know, within straight couples, it tends to be that women lose out um, in that kind of asset when assets are divvied up. Mm-hmm. So there's... A distinctive gender politics emerging in, or a set of inequalities emerging um, in the Welsh society that are distinctive to this moment, um, and I think what your your findings are are actually um, picking picking up those inequalities really nicely. So, um, if you can describe it in those terms. Um, so, for example um you know you talk about the investment focused couples and the women in those couples being really empowered to take on the um kind of role of property investor or yeah
1: or like manager maybe it's it's a manager. different yeah. different kind of work yeah i mean it is work it right it is work
0: right yeah
1: to manage all the
0: assets that's right yeah so there's a different kind of reproduction of the household going yes, on yes. there which relates very much to the kind of notion of the the minskyan household you know the with the balance sheets mm-hmm. um um and seeing the household as uh as a kind of in, in 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 as an investment um and so i think you're you're really picking up on the, those those politics there and then there's a question of you know well what which households can actually be those households and which ones are losing out? Oh, yeah. You know, there's that yeah. kind of politics as well. So I think that the question around the contours of gender inequalities in the wealth society or the asset economy is a really critical one. Mm-hmm. Um, I've outlined some of the ways in which I think that's critical. And I think your data is pointing to it as well.
1: Mm-hmm. What can we do? Do you have a solution
0: <laughs> Well, there's huge debates at the moment out there about um you know wealth taxes and the like so changes to fiscal policy mm-hmm. are really significant um, changes to um, divorce and separation rules. Um, I mean, in the, in the gender of capital book as well, they point to the significance of other professions in in, in enabling these inner policies to emerge as well. So the law profession, for example. Okay. So I think there's a whole set of shifts and changes that need to take place. Unfortunately, in terms of public debates, we're really fixated on the super rich and the 1%. And I think what, I agree. Yeah. what that obscures is how the wealth society uh, or the asset economy has changed has changed the dynamics of how we live and of inequalities for everyone. It's yeah. not just the top one percent, you know. Yeah. So if you look in, in in Australia, those who have benefited from asset inflation, they it's across the distribution, you know. It's the top fifty or sixty percent mm-hmm. of the distribution. It's not just the top one percent. Yeah, you know. So we need to recognise that first and foremost, and it's there that I think that sociologists have got a really key role to play in pub- in shaping public debate, and hopefully your research will. We'll do do that in Germany, contribute to that shift.
1: And maybe this uh, podcast episode. And this podcast, yeah. We'll do it too. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure.
0: Thank you so much for inviting me.
1: Appropriate. Diese Podcast-Reihe entsteht im Rahmen des Sonderforschungsbereichs Transregio 294 Strukturwandel des Eigentums und wird gefördert durch die Deutsche Forschungsgemeinschaft DFG unter der Fördernummer SFB TRR 294/1-424638267.